First uh, Kings 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they want to kill me too. The Lord said, Get out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Then the Lord said, Go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, Anoint Haziel, king over Aram. Also, anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Haziel. And Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I have reserved in Israel 7,000. All whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. The word of the Lord. (laughs) 
Harvey Specter is untouchable. If you are familiar with that name, uh, Harvey, you're familiar with a TV series uh, that has been um, aired for the past decade. Actually, I think it ended this September. Um, called Suits. And it's a TV show that's, that's all about a big shot lawyer named Harvey. And every deal that Harvey makes, every time he opens his mouth, every time he talks to a client, he's absolutely killing it. He becomes named partner at one of the most prestigious law firms in the United States. And as the show develops, though, Harvey, over time, begins to take on stress. Office politics, bad decisions that he has made, that his colleagues have made, past relationships that have ended poorly and are coming to the surface again with colleagues or with, with other people. All of these things bring up a deep, deep fear that he could lose it all. His co-workers, his friends, his success, his reputation, his job, his salary, his career, everything starts compiling up. And in one of the, the show's most um, it, it just weighty moments, Harvey Specter, the untouchable Harvey Specter, has a panic attack. It's a moment when, and when Harvey realizes, maybe for the first time, that he can't fix all his problems. This is the tension in this story. Elijah the prophet, who's just called down fire from heaven on Mount Carmel when he engaged in an epic head-to-head battle against the priests of Baal and kills it. That moment that he should be full in faith in his God, the God who's going to set everything right, the God who will remain faithful to Israel, who won't abandon his people, who will see things through, is the moment that he becomes afraid. It brings up insecurities in him when he hears about what Jezebel is going to do. The question we come to at the beginning of this story is when the reality of this world, of Elijah's world, comes and forces him to wrestle, deeply wrestle with who his God is, where does he go and what does he do? I can't imagine that this is far from any of our experiences. You know, we're entering a season of Lent, a season of 40 days before Maundy Thursday where we as as Christians remember and reflect on our, our brokenness, our sinfulness. It's a time when we remember how great the sacrifice of Christ was and how needed it was because of our brokenness. And in so doing, in the midst of this season, we're challenged by Jesus to face the deepest insecurities in us. The flaws that we like to ignore, personally, also as a community, as a church, as First Hamilton. This is a moment, a time, a season for us to reflect on our character as a body, The things we say or do or act, how they hurt other people, how they hurt our relationship with God. Like Harvey, Lent is a season when we realize we can't fix everything. And as we face our sin, it can bring up questions in us. What if this backfires on me? 
Right? What if I do the tough work of journeying through the desert of Lent and it backfires on me? What if people don't understand me? What if God is too angry at me to forgive me? What if he doesn't protect me or have my best in mind? Elijah helps us to see in this story how God responds when fear and anxiety come up in us. And so Elijah is the perfect person to give us courage to enter into this journey of Lent. The the God of the wilderness is the God of Elijah, the God of the brokenhearted. So three points this morning as we begin our journey through Lent is first, God provides Second, God speaks. And third, God saves. God provides, God speaks, and God saves. So first, God provides. So after seeing that Jezebel, the queen of Israel, has heard about the the Mount Carmel showdown, um, she boldly proclaims that she will take Elijah's life within the next 24 hours. He must have been wondering, where did God go? What happened? How can this be? You know, things must have been swirling around in his head as he, as he tries to get away from, from this crazy person. How do I make sense of this? Why would God send me as a prophet to this people if nobody's going to listen and if I'm just going to die? So confused and exhausted, he found himself in the wilderness, underneath a tree, right? Just praying that he might die. It's probably the lowest moment in his life. But Elijah is doing something right. He is seeking God. He goes into the desert to seek God, to be with God, to find God. He's desperate. He's in a lot of ways hopeless, but he knows that he needs to find God. You know, perhaps this is the way you feel. You're seeking God. Maybe there's things with health, you know, yours or a loved one, where you need God to show up. Relationships are, there's tension or animosity, family dynamics, and you need God to show up. Or it's something you find yourself addicted to, and no matter how hard that you try, no matter how many times you make a promise to yourself, You just can't seem to get out of the rut. And you're seeking God. The first glimpse of God in this passage is in the wilderness. When Elijah is on his way to Mount Horeb, the mountain of the Lord, God shows up. Do you see it? God sent an angel to touch him. He shows up by touching Elijah. And this is such a small little piece in the text that we can seem to go over it, but it's an amazingly fine detail that makes a big difference. If you think about it, how many things are more powerful than human touch? Think about a a, a hug at the right time. The warmth of an embrace Standing beside somebody who's in pain and wrapping your arm around them. Or a fist bump, or a high five, or a pat on the back. Touch, human touch, is one of the most powerful things that we can share with one another. Now imagine, imagine 
the touch of an angel. A touch that says, I get it. I understand. And I want you to know that I'm with you. God shows up by providing Elijah with emotional strength to face a new day. But also physical strength, right? The angel says to him, he doesn't just touch him, he says, he touches him and says, get up and eat and drink. And then Elijah looks around and he sees that there's, there's bread and there's water. There's, there's nourishment for him. God knows. God knows where Elijah is coming from. God knows where he's going and he ministers to him along the way. Have you ever stayed home sick from school? Those are the best days, aren't they? I always have pictures of the Calvin and Hobbes comics of the TV at the foot of the bed. And I always asked my mom for that and never got to watch TV on my... But, but you know that any, when, when you stay home sick, one of the best parts is that oftentimes one of your parents will stay home with you. And they'll take care of you. And they'll get you what you need. And we know that any good caregiver doesn't just come once, Right? You come once and you say, okay, here's the soup, or here's the cough medicine, or, or here's the bowl that you may need, or the iPad to watch Netflix on. But then it's always followed up, right? With, and I'll be back in an hour to check on you. Am I right? Look at the text. God is a good father. He knows his children. He knows that it takes more than one touch to really motivate someone to get them through the day he comes back again and does the same thing all over again and he adds something onto it the the angel says to him you need to eat because this journey through the desert this journey through Lent is going to be too much for you you need the nourishment that I provide along the way See, we worship the same God as Elijah, a God who provides for us, a God who knows where we come from and meets us. He provides. God also speaks. Elijah travels 40 days and 40 nights and arrives at the famous Mount Horeb. Think about it. 40 days and 40 nights alone. Think about the longest time that you've been alone. Anyone here been alone, all alone, for more than three days? Can you put up your hand? Okay, a few of you. Five days? One of you. Gina, you're the only one. Seven days? Okay, so Gina made it a week and never forgot about it. Elijah went 40 days. Imagine the thoughts that would have gone through Elijah's mind, how much time he had to process his experiences, his life, right? Think about it. This forces us to ask the question, how, how do we go on a, a long time alone? Do, do, do we go on and, and let, um, let ourselves reflect on our our own personal lives as much as we slow down and pay attention to the journey. Mount Horeb is a, is a special place 
in the Bible. It's the place where Moses went to meet with God and receive the Ten Commandments from him. There's a lot of parallels to that passage in Exodus where Moses receives the Ten Commandments that there is to this one. Moses also had, had God pass by. So it makes sense that Elijah, who wanted to meet with God, who wanted, who needed to find God, went to this mountain. It was the place where God's presence was. It was the holy mountain. And God speaks when he gets there and says, what are you doing here, Elijah? See, often people interpret Elijah's response to this as being very egocentric, right? That Elijah throws down Israel, pumps up his own tires, and asks God, you know, I'm doing nothing wrong here. I'm the hero in this story. A lot of people see it that way. Like a three-year-old right, who points the finger at their older sibling and says, they're the ones who did it all, and I'm, I'm innocent. But a few commentators that I've been reading this week, they pointed out, a few things in the text that I can't quite get into, but if you, if, I'll, I'll explain it after if you, if you want. You can come talk to me about it. But there's a few things in the text that point to the fact that Elijah's actually not having a fit. He is pouring his heart to a God who he worships. He says, I've been zealous for the Lord God Almighty, but the Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've put your prophets to death with the sword, and I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. This is an honest cry of a broken man. And if, if we see it that way, if we see it as Elijah pouring his heart out to God, then it forces us to ask this question, can we say the same thing about ourselves? Are we equally zealous? Are we equally passionate for a God that we are willing to cry out to him about the brokenness we see in our world, the brokenness we see in ourselves? Are we willing to listen to God's response to that, to face that, to seek him? Or are we too afraid are we too busy to put in the effort? Or, or do we push down the Holy Spirit's convicting power when it does bubble up inside of us? Elijah is showing us good courage to face the truth about ourselves and about our world. See, he's the perfect guide for Lent. God tells Elijah, after he's poured his heart out to him, God tells Elijah that his presence is about to pass by. You know, what will God say? How will God speak? Elijah might have expected God to blow him off the mountain with the wind that came. But the Lord was not in the wind. Elijah might have expected God to be in the earthquake as a way of saying, how dare you show your weakness to me like that? Coming to me as a broken man, you should try harder. You should do more. But God was not in the earthquake. Elijah might have expected God to be so upset at the way that Israel was rejecting him that, 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 that he would just snuff him out then and there in the fire. But God was not in the fire. A gentle whisper came 
a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard this, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. I don't think this was how Elijah expected God to speak. And I find it interesting that when he hears this gentle whisper, he covers his face. Like a gentle whisper from the, the word of the mouth of the Lord was more powerful than anything he'd experienced before. A Bible commentator that I was reading this week put it like this. God's word cannot be silenced. It remains the force that produces the remnant, Israel, that protects the remnant and empowers the remnant. God's word cannot be silenced. And this, this commentator goes on and summarizes the, the few verses that come at the end of this passage. He says, go back the way you came is a command that, that calls Elijah back into active service. Elijah probably thought he was done. God says, I'm not done with you yet. You must anoint Hazael, king of Syria, which declares Yahweh's lordship over that non-Israelite country. This command is coupled with the Lord's comment that he has actually selected 7,000 people who have not worshipped Baal. This reminds Elijah that God's word cannot be silenced. That it remains the force that protects the remnant, produces the remnant, and empowers the remnant. God speaks. And God speaks to us today. God also saves. See, the, the beauty of this story is that it shows us that God's story is much bigger than us. Can I get an amen? God's story is much bigger than us. Elijah had no idea about those 7,000 who had not bowed to Baal. See, he thought he was alone. He was surrounded. He thought he couldn't face another day. God provided for him. He thought he was a dead man. He forgot about the powerful word-speaking God he worshipped. Elijah pours his heart out to God and is met in a powerful and a profound way by the God who saves his people. Elijah could not face this alone. Right? He could not have faced Israel alone. He needed a providing God. He needed a speaking God. And he needed a saving God. Or he would not have gotten off of his butt underneath that broom tree. Right? God is the actor in this story. What about us? God sends us on a journey through Lent. Forty days. Right? It's the same journey through the wilderness that Elijah had to do. We can feel like Lent is a place that we don't want to go. I bet Elijah wished he could just fast forward through the wilderness and end up where God is speaking to him. The question for us is, do we have to go to the mountain of God to hear from him? What does that even look like? How do we go through the Lent journey with a God who provides, a God who speaks, and a God who saves? It's because of 
where we're journeying to. We're journeying to the cross. And that's a finished work. See, years later, Jesus Christ was hanging on the cross on another mountain, a mountain called Golgotha. It was a desert experience for him. Right? He lost touch with God. I'm sure those hours that he spent on the cross felt not like days, but like years. Jesus Christ, the word of God, who is with his father ever since the beginning, knew that in the moment on the cross, he lost him. And he cried out when he felt this. And he said, my God, my God, why have you left me? Why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me in the desert? And he was not heard. Or he was not answered. Why did Jesus go through this desert experience? Why did Jesus go up this mountain to the cross? He did it for us. He did it so that when we're in our moments of need, when we're making this journey through Lent, when we're looking inside ourselves and seeing the insecurities bubble up because we can't fix all our problems, we know where we're going. And we know whose story this is. This is God working in and through us because our God saves. And through Jesus, our God saves us. Church, we need to know this before we go on this journey through Lent. We need to know this, that we encounter God in the wilderness because Jesus Christ went there for us and conquered it. And so through the next coming weeks, we're going to keep looking at what does encountering God in Lent look like? What does it look like to encounter God through touch? or through, through our sight, or through our taste and our smell? What does it look like to be remade through this Lenten journey to the cross? Elijah the prophet, Harvey Specter the lawyer, or anyone who knows that, that they can't solve their own problems, We'll always deflect and cover up or hide unless, unless we have the courage that Elijah shows us, that Jesus empowers us to freely expose ourselves and be healed by his grace and forgiveness. Church, we worship a God who provides, a God who speaks, and a God who saves so come to the table and receive the nourishment for the journey. It's a table that tells us that we are never alone, ever. It's a table that we come to because we can't do it alone. Thanks be to Christ that we have this, that we have him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit to really dig in through this Lenten season as the, we journey 
you know, 40 days to the cross, as we remind ourselves again and again of our brokenness, of our need for a Savior, Lord, we pray that this would be a season of healing, of renewal, of being purified. Lord, make us more into the people you desire us to be, Lord, and use this table to nourish us along the way. And Father, we thank you that you are a God who provides, that you are a God who speaks, that you are a God who saves. In Jesus' name, amen.